0: We're actually going to start a series on Nehemiah that's going to run for about eight eight Sundays. The series is called About a Great Work, which is a, a line from Nehemiah, uh, which we'll come to later. But I, I don't know if you've um, uh, ever been to Manchester University. We used to live in Manchester. And outside Manchester University, there's a statue uh, of um, this chap. Okay, does anybody know who it is? You probably won't, because it... You wouldn't know what he looked like. I'll give you a clue. He's in a bath. That is a bath. It's not a surfboard. Archimedes, yes. It's outside the science department uh, of uh, Manchester University. And that man is Archimedes. I don't know who the model was. He looks... Well, he's got a body even worse than mine. So let's not even go there. But I don't know if you know the stories of Archimedes. 2,200 years ago, uh, an elderly Greek man was climbing to his bath... And um, what happened? He realised. I'm sure he'd had a bath many times before. I would hope. I don't know much about um, hygiene, but a bath, gentleman, is that big bowl of water where you actually wash yourself. And um, yeah, and so he stands. It gets in the bath, and what happens is that as he gets in, the water rises over and spills out. Now, if that was me, I'd be thinking, Oh my word, I better clean up before the Naomi's come or whatever But actually he realizes he has this moment. Does anybody know what he he says something? He says Eureka which means I've got it. it." What has he got? I mean just for the sake of the scientists here, what has he got? The, the the weight the weight of water displaced is equal to the upthrust or something isn't it whatever whatever that means but it, what it means is he suddenly he's been working on this thing how do you how do you weigh stuff I don't know and suddenly he gets this moment Eureka i found it moment and um, and actually it says that he was so excited. That he ran out into streets of Syracuse. That's not Syracuse, New York, for our American friends, Syracuse in Greece. He ran out of, uh, into streets of Syracuse ne- naked, shouting, Eureka! Eureka! Obviously, other people probably thought, No, 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 go back and get your clothes on. But, but I want to talk about a Eureka moment this morning. I want to talk about a moment in the life of, of Nehemiah where he suddenly sees it. I got it. Yes, Eureka! And, um, uh, and I think that, that this this moment changes his life. It changes the life not just of himself, but it changes the, the life of a city and of a nation. And so, it's so important that we understand that we have those moments, that we have those eureka moments. It might have been a point where you became a Christian. It might be a point where you, you suddenly met your wife and, and, and she declared, I found him. Maybe not. Maybe, but, but you may have had those eureka moments where suddenly you think, yeah, that's what I'm made for. That's what I'm crafted for. That's what I'm created for. It, for, for, for Archimedes, it was like suddenly the, the solution to his problems. He's famous for that. And, and I think for Nehemiah, that, that, that happens to him. And my prayer is that, that in, even in this small setting this morning, that, that would happen to you a little bit. So let me just uh, read from Nehemiah. I'm going to read a few verses from Nehemiah chapter uh, 1. And then we'll uh, pray and go to work. Okay, the words of Nehemiah, son of Halakai, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, that's the 20th year of Archime, uh, not Archimedes, Artaxerxes. If you want to think, who's Artaxerxes? His father was Darius, who's mentioned in Daniel, and his great-grandfather was Xerxes, the, the nutty one from... 300, yes, 300 Spartans. So that's who he is, he's a, he's a Persian prince. So it's in, the, in the 20th year, I came to the citadel of Susa. Susa was a, a summer palace down in the Persian Gulf. And Haniah, one of my kinsmen, so probably uh, uh, one of his wider family, Nehemiah's wider family, came from Judah, uh, Israel where it is today, with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, God, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites and my I, including myself and my father's family have committed against you and then he goes on to pray some more. Lord, we just pray as we uh, look at Nehemiah. I do pray for for us that you would open our eyes afresh. I pray that we would receive the news just like Nehemiah received news and it would impact us. Lord, so often news comes, goes, information comes and goes and we are unaffected. But I pray, Lord, that you would affect us this morning and cause us to pray and cause us to be stirred to give ourselves to you and your cause. Amen. Okay, so let me just give you where we are in Nehemiah. I'll do this once and once only. Creation, Genesis account, then the call of Abraham, so the formation of the nation of Israel, and then the, the, the uh, J- Abraham, Isaac, etc., Jacob, and then into, into uh, uh, Egypt, out of Egypt with the Exodus through Moses, wandering through the, prom, uh, through the uh, desert, into Canaan, the land of Canaan, and then conquest of Canaan, and then conquest of uh, completed, period of judges, so that's the Bible so far, and then moving on. So then there's king, King David Israel becomes a monarch. The kingdom, the period of the kings, the kingdom's divided into two. And in 722, you've got the fall of the northern kingdom. Uh, That's the Assyrians come in and trash the northern kingdom. And then in 586, you've got the southern kingdom of Judah is also invaded. And just before that, during the time of kind of uh, when the Babylonians are invading You've got Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel, and then when the when the people of Israel are in exile, you've got the book of Daniel. And then what happens in about five fifteen uh, BC is that the uh, uh, Persian uh, the Persian king Cyrus, allows some people to go back and start to rebuild. So the first wave is a, a guy called Ezra and the priests Zerubbabel, and they rebuild the temple. And then at the same time, Esther is doing her wonderful stuff in. Um, Influencing the king back in, uh, Babylon and, ne- and Nehemiah. So that's where we are. And then right, so we're almost right at the end of the Old Testament. Okay, is that helpful? Alright, so that's where we are. So um, you got, so, so what happens is that, that people come back from, from Jerusalem and to, uh, tell, and he's keen to ask them news. Obviously we're awash with news. We've got loads of news and information these days, but he's, uh, Nehemiah is keen to find out what's going on. And uh, his uh, his kinsman, his relative Hananiah, tells him that it's a mess. Tells him that the walls are broken down, that the gates are burnt, and the people are in great trouble and distress. Now it's interesting, actually, that that happened about 143 years previous to what we're talking about. We're talking about 445 BC, and this is almost 100 years, 143 years earlier. So I was struck by that, I thought that, you know, what happened 143 years ago, uh, uh, previous to Nehemiah, was that the Babylonians had plundered Solomon's temple, they'd pulled down the city walls, they'd burned the gates, and about two-thirds of the population of of Israel were taken into exile, they were taken as slaves into Babylon, and then a a, a small group, mostly the poor and the lame, and the people who didn't have anything to offer, quote-unquote, as slaves, they were left behind. So basically, you had just the, the wealthy and the influential and the, and the able-bodied were taken, and the, and the poor and the weak uh, were left in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is absolutely uh, wiped to the floor; it's a pile of rubble. And um, and what you've got then is this idea of the people that are left behind, the remnant. And uh, the remnant have been stripped of their religious identity; they weren't allowed to worship in the temple. Obviously, they were vulnerable to their enemies because the walls have been turned uh, to. Torn down, and there was like constant threat of famine. Now, this happened, you know, years before the Nehemiah moment. And actually, Lamentations uh, describes uh, that Lamentations is written at the time of the uh, destruction of uh, Jerusalem, 143 years before Nehemiah. This is how they describe, this is how one writer describes what happened. It says, How deserted. He's almost a kind of Lamentation means. Crying and wailing and, you know, sadness. Pouring out the sadness of what's happened. So he's pouring out to God and he starts Lamentations one one. How deserted lies the city. One so full of people. How like a widow she is. A widow in those days was shameful because had no name. And we, I was hearing actually some friends who went to uh, Palestine even last year and finding female orphans who because they had no father, no family became personless so this kind of sense of widow isn't oh, it's just lost their husband they've lost all their status they're subject to shame How like a widow she was, who was once great among the nations. Bitterly she, Jerusalem, weeps at night, tears upon her cheeks. And then chapter 2 continues. All who pass your way clap their hands at you. They mock and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies open their mouths wide against you. They mock and gnash their teeth. We have swallowed up. This is the day we waited for. We've lived to see it. And in one sense, you can get little echoes of, of Jesus. You know, people seeing Jesus on the cross, and they laugh at him, and they say, great, we've swallowed him up, it's destroyed. But actually, here it's, it's, it's Jerusalem, it's almost like this sense, this city of Jerusalem was meant to be the, the joy of the whole earth, the city of God, where, where God's temple, where Solomon built this amazing temple, this wonder of the world, and where God's, peop, God's could, people could come and worship him, and the nations could come. And it was meant to be a place of joy and fulfilment. It was a place to be like a little picture of what the whole world was going to become. Where God dwelt amongst us. So Jerusalem was a place where God was to be worshipped and his word was to be treasured. Where true justice and true righteousness was to be demonstrated. Where the people would live counter-cultural God honouring lives in contrast to the people around them. And what happened that that had all gone. They hadn't lived any life differently. In fact, they'd life worse. And God had said, right, because of that, you know, be on your own head. And they have been destroyed by the Babylonians. Now, if you've been around church at all, any time, you'll know that, that Jerusalem is a picture for what? It's often called Mount Zion. Does that help you? It's a picture of heaven, yeah, also, but something a bit more down to earth than heaven. It's a picture of the church. Often when you uh, talk about, and you look in Revelation, the new Jerusalem, it's actually this, um, it's the church, the, the bride of Christ coming down from him. So when we're talking about Jerusalem in this story, in Nehemiah, in this history, we're talking about the church. Uh the people of Jerusalem were almost like a prototype of God's church. They were they were supposed to how that what they did with their money, what did they do with their bodies, what they did with their families, what they did with community and relationships, were all meant to show how God's people were meant to live. And that's what we're supposed to do. Church isn't about gathering here only, although that's important. It's also about that we are a living demonstration of what it's like to be God's people. And so that's really important that we've got that in our heads, that, that what we do has God's reputation at stake. Just like when Jerusalem was destroyed and that people mocked God and said, well, is this the joy of the whole earth? Is this the city, the perfection of duty where the great king lives? And when the church is a mess, when the church is on its back foot, people say the same. I was shocked, obviously, in Ireland. I was Well, I wasn't shocked. I was slightly surprised that yesterday Ireland voted for um, to redefine marriage. Um, first time it's been put to a referendum. Ireland is a highly Catholic country. Many, Most people, if you'd asked them, even ten years ago would we describe them, yes, I'm Catholic. It's almost to be Catholic was to be Irish. And here we have a, a vote where actually most people are saying, no, that's, that's gone. And I'm not suggesting that at all, that we should discriminate against homosexuals in a, in a sense of, of prejudice. But what I'm saying is, it's an understanding that you know, the, lots of things that we held, even 20 years ago, have gone. They interviewed this older lady and she said, I'm surprised to put it on the TV really, but they interviewed this older lady and she said, this is not what I was taught at church. Yeah. We're in this situation... In, a, in the UK. So the interesting, so what happens is this report comes back from Jerusalem to Babylon and to, to Nehemiah and the report says that the, the, the walls are torn down, that the gates are burned, that people are in great distress and everybody's mocking and laughing the city. There's famine there. Now I want to ask you the question, if somebody, I mean we've got some people from other nations, but if, if people uh, came to the UK and said, tell me about the church, and then go back. They go back to India, or they go back to the United States, or they go back to somewhere else, they go back to Portugal and say, tell me about the state of the church in the UK. What kind of report would they bring? What kind of report would they find? Now this, in sense, what I'm about to tell you, isn't, isn't new news. You know, Nehemiah's news was 143 years old. He knew the walls were broken down. He knew that that, that the gates were burnt. He knew all that. It's 143-year-old news. And what I'm about to tell you isn't new news. But here's a quote from the Times. I've only got the second part of it up here. But a quote from the Times, 2008. Sorry, I couldn't find one more up to date, but I'm sure I could if I dug around. Church attendance in Britain is declining so fast that the number of regular churchgoers will be fewer than those attending mosques within a generation. Researched, published. 2010 suggests the fall to less than seven people per hundred who attend any kind of church once a month affects all major denominations and all age groups ac- except the over 65s. The, the report goes on: independent statisticians predict confidently that in the next uh, little more than a generation, as aging congregations die. The decline will force church closures until Christianity becomes a minority sect of largely elderly people. And we become a country whose traditional faith is slowly retreating into history. The last 10 years, a church in the UK, building or community, has closed every day. Over 365 churches closed every year. One a day. The replacement of new churches is less than half of that. So that's what's happening. You know, we are, the Christian church is on attack on every side. The walls are bu- uh, pulled down. Anybody can get in with any kind of dumb idea. The media can have a go. Nobody, it's not a strong place in one sense. We feel on the back foot. We feel like what's happening. It shocked me the other day. Uh, I was listening to. Um, 5 Live, which is probably a mistake, and um, Tim Fallon, who's a, a liberal uh, Democrat, uh, you know, you can choose his politics, I wouldn't necessarily go there, but he's a Christian. And he was being interviewed about his candidacy for the leadership of the Liberal Democrat Party by Nikki Campbell. And they'd had a previous candidate the day before, and they'd asked him all sorts of normal policy questions. Nikki Campbell interviews this guy for five minutes. Every single uh, question that Nikki Campbell asked suggested, how can you be a Christian and be anything in favour of equality? How can you be a Christian and not be a bigot? How can you be a Christian and not be a hypocrite? How can you? He didn't say it like that, but that was the implication of the question. And Tim Fallon spends five minutes defending why it's, you actually, being a Christian, can, you can be a reasonably nice person. That's where we're at, folks. You tell people you're a Christian, they don't think, oh, this person's going to be full of love and grace. They think you must be a hypocrite or you must be a bigot. And actually, in the UK, it's bad. But actually, I saw a program the other day, uh, which was shocking. It talked about the murder of Christians globally. 120,000 Christians are martyred for their faith every year globally. It was a shocking video of uh, Islamic state. Um, I didn't see the video, but these were Egyptian Christians. It's basically saying that what we're going to do is we're going to take the population of Cheltenham and over a 12-month period, we're going to slaughter them in the street. A hanging or an execution every 10 hours. Those who survive, says... The reports are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of the city of the great king are broken down and its gates are burned with fire. But I feel challenged a bit like Nehemiah because Nehemiah's got a nice job. We'll find that in chapter 2. He's got a good job. He's well placed. He's, everything's nice for him. But it seems to me that he's known this information before. But this time it gets him. And I thought as I'm preparing this and, and I just want you to know that, that, that I tried to have God speak to me before I try and speak to you. So usually a lot of what I'm processing is really where I'm at and not where necessarily you are but some of you might be where I'm at. But I reflected and thinks we're probably more concerned about the type of coffee we drink. I go to conferences I, I mean I've been nice I go to conferences and, and you know Americans particularly are really concerned about their coffee. Yeah? I know we've got a few here, but, but you know, if you serve them one type of coffee, it's like, whoa, no, we don't do that. You know, these guys will travel miles to find a Starbucks or what it is that serves the right coffee. You know, American Christians, if, if you have a conference and the coffee's not right, then, then you're going to hear about it. British are getting there. We're getting there. You know, we, if you've got the wrong cakes, Karen, you're so wonderful. We've got the right cakes now. But you know, we're concerned about the coffee and the cakes. We're, you know, people are concerned about the latest box set. It's amazing how much we know about, I don't know what it is now, West Wing, Lost, what is the latest box set, Game of Thrones, we've all watched them, hours and hours and hours of that, and we're all concerned about that. Or, or we're more concerned about getting a lie in bed on Sunday morning, or lie in bed at the weekend, whilst, this is I feel this is me, and it might be you, whilst we're unmoved about Jesus, his bride, his church, and the new Jerusalem that lies in ruins. We can walk around with our eyes open but not see. I can live in comfort and ease and never see those around me in trouble and despair. It shocks me how easily that becomes me. We can hear the good news of Jesus again and again and it never really lands. It never moves from information to action, from knowing to believing, from hearing to doing. It just bounces off. The church lies in ruins in so many ways. Yeah, I'm not saying that this church is bad or there aren't great churches in this town or in the nations. But but generally the church in Europe is in a mess. Falling down, gates burned, ridiculed. And we seem unmoved. Unmoved. But what happens with Nehemiah is that the information comes to him afresh and suddenly it moves from information to imperative. What's imperative? Got to do something about it. It moves from history to suddenly it's his story and his calling. We've got to do something about this. He sees the world differently. He moves from listening to probably these reports again and again from Judah to really hearing, from looking to really seeing, from knowing to really believing. And God wants to do that with us. He does it with Moses. Moses is a shepherd. He's been in Egypt, but it's forty years since he's been in. He knew that they were slaves, and he—I guess—you forget. He's going about his business, the people in, a, in a slavery in Egypt, and he just forgets. And then what happens? He sees a bush. You know the story, perhaps. He sees a bush that's burning, but not, not burning. And then God says, I have heard the cries of your people. Has Moses heard? No. Has Nehemiah heard? Not really. But God has heard. And God wants to get Nehemiah and say, I want to get you with this program. This is going to be the thing that's going to define your life. You've had a good job before, but this is going to define your life. It happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. He's on a horse. God knocked him off a horse and said, why are you persecuting my people? God has known. God has seen the persecution. And I think it ha- can happen to all of us, and I'm not saying I'm there, but it needs to happen to me perhaps often. But I was in a, in a cow shed in Wales, and I thought, God say, Howard, you've got to do something. You've got to be, I'm calling you to be part of the solution. I'm calling to be part of the solution. Whether, you know, uh, to, to where, where my priorities change. There's a moment in my life when I saw that the church was not something merely to attend, but God's plan To change the world. Building the church is what Jesus is doing on the earth. And sometimes I think, why God? Don't you do it better? Why does it seem that we're in the west on the back foot? And actually what happens is, I think that's a good prayer. It's a good feeling. Why is this like this? Why is it that so few people become Christians at God first? Why is it like that? Why is it that so we seem to make so little difference? And I'm not trying to batter you. I'm trying to say, actually, if God is in heaven, this should be different, shouldn't it? Not just more bums on seats, but it should be different. Say yes. Yes. Nehemiah owns it. He's caught with the depth of emotion that, 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 about Jesus' church and Jesus' name and Jesus' people. He says, when I heard these things, I sat down and, say it with me, wept. For God say to me, unless we weep over the ruins, we'll never rebuild the walls. Unless we weep over the ruins, we'll never rebuild the walls. I was in a leaders meeting, 25 leaders, we go around the room as usual saying how it's going, every single church, just marriage after marriage after marriage, leaders saying I'm exhausted, just marriage is breaking up, the world is invading and we feel powerless to do anything about it, if we weep we're in good company. So you've got to create some false tears as an inner weeping, really. But you can wipe it out. But this is, this is Jesus, isn't it? In the days before his crucifixion, he weeps over this same city, he weeps over Jerusalem and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent you, how often I'd allow them to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under the wings. But you would not. Look, your house is left to you desolate says, not one stone upon the other will be left. That's what happened. Jesus, they rebuilt the temple and same thing. He prays. Actually, when he says, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the governor. Some days for me would be a couple. I prayed for a couple of days. That would be good. He does a hundred days. I don't think he fasts for a hundred days. I think that would have been a stretch. But I think he punctuates that with Fasting, I felt as I'm preparing this, actually on the train coming up from London when I wrote this little paragraph. And I thought, when was the last time I missed a meal because I'm concerned about the state of God's church? Not to kind of prove that I'm some hero, but because it matters to me. I found, I read this quote that nailed me to the wall. Raymond Brown in his commentary says, prayer is the most eloquent expression of our priorities, church is in ruin in this nation. Some good bits, yeah, but generally it's on the back foot. Seven percent. How far does it need to go before it finds its place in our priorities? How do we measure? I'm just praying into this, and I'm finding some either ors, and I've put them down for you. So, what's my priority? Is it there's a slide there, Rich? Is it internet or intercession? Is it supper or supping? We we'll like to do supping in this church. Or supplication. All these are types of prayer, by the way, on the right hand side. TV remote or close to God? Passivity or passion? Comfort or his great cause? Great gain or his great name? Worry. Or worship ourselves, or our saviour. I don't want to make you feel bad. I'm writing this, and I'm thinking I want to make people feel bad. But what happens is, in the context, if you're feeling bad, you're entering Nehemiah's story because suddenly it impacts him. Oh. Now, what are my my response to this would be? Well, we've got to do something. Let's have another Mission Sunday. Let's reshape our small groups. Let's, let's have a different preaching series. Let's, let's get a church app. Let's get all these things to make it sorted. And in one sense, none of those are bad. But actually, what Nehemiah does, we've got to do it. I won't tell you how many came to God First Church prayer meeting last Sunday. But it wasn't all of us. Nehemiah understands. I felt God say this to me. Nehemiah instinctively knew the economy of heaven. Say that again. Nehemiah instinctively knew the economy of heaven. What works? A hundred days beseeching the king of heaven, and we'll see it in chapter 2, in preparation for ten minutes before the king of men. I'm praying about this, I'm walking on the hill on Friday and I'm praying about it and I think, oh God, please, how can I preach this? Nehemiah's priorities showed he knew where true influence, true purpose, true fulfillment lies. He blasts heaven, doesn't he? He do not bless heaven because God's a tight-fisted, mean God, a small God who doesn't love. He blasts heaven because he knows that actually God loves and cares. He says, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. How often do I pray and my God's too small? I don't think he can do anything anymore. I never pray for stuff perhaps because I don't think he does anything anymore. Because he's too small. But you know, we don't pray for people to get healed because do it. Well, what happens if it doesn't happen? And that's my, not my problem. It's because my God's too small sometimes. We don't give ourselves to God's cause because our God's too small. We don't give ourselves to say, Lord, make a difference to the poor because our God's too small. Great and glorious God of heaven who keeps his covenant of love. Just rest back in that. That's a big sofa. We'll just do that. I'm going to do that now. Keeps his covenant of love. We're saying it in the worship, he's faithful, he's faithful, he loves you. Sometimes we don't pray because think God doesn't love you. Sometimes we think we don't pray because God's too small, can't do anything. But most of the time it's because we think God doesn't love me because I'm too bad. He says, no, he keeps his covenant love those who walk in his ways. Now let your ear, come on God, be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. The writer to Hebrews puts it like this. He says, at present, we do not see everything subject to Jesus. Is that true? You look in the news and your paper and even in your own life and your own relationship, God, would you come? We don't see everything subject to him. But, does anyone know what he says? But, it's a great but. But, we do see Jesus! Now crowned with glory and honor. Oh, the world's a mess and the church is in a mess. Right, pack it in. No, because we see Jesus now crowned with glory and honor. He's a great and glorious God. We see it. We see it. It's really sad when I think of the church that I attended as a kid. There should be a picture there that says nobody there. See that old ruin? That was a a Methodist church built in the 1800s in the middle of Bradford in West Yorkshire. It's called Eastbrook Hall. And that is 15 years after I left it as a kid. It seated 1500. When I was a kid, there was about 120 there. When I left to go to university and came back, they closed it down. It burned burned with a fire and was abandoned. The big, massive church in the middle of Bradford was abandoned. But when I was there, this is what I observed. Nobody expected to pray and for God to answer. Nobody expected lost people to get saved. Nobody expected God to be present by his spirit. Nobody expected the lonely and broken to be enfolded in community. Nobody expected the people to be changed by the gospel. Nobody expected anything to happen. And guess what? Nothing happened. Now we might not say that that is where we are, but that's where the church in this nation is. And we have to be part of the answer. We have to be part of the answer. Let me just finish with this. What Nehemiah does next, and I don't want to necessarily have some big emotional moment, but if it, God hits you, that what he does, he prays and weeps, and then he says, God, you're great, but I have messed up. He says, I confess that my myself and my father and my father's family, we have not walked in your ways. This has not bothered us. It's bounced off. And I think that there's a place for us to confess. There's a place for us to say, well, yeah, Howard, I'm part of it and I'm loving it and it's all good, but to be honest, I just put it alongside my box sets and my coffee and my sofas and my lying in. Just this morning, as I'm finishing this, I God say this passage. It says, I know your deeds. This is Church Ephesians in Revelation, it's a bit bang, but this is that kind of sermon, I'm afraid. I know your deeds, your toil and perseverance. I know that you're on rotors. I know that you give and love and build community. I know those things. And that you've endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've left your first love. Repent and do the things you did at first. That's what Nehemiah is called to, isn't he? I'm going to do the things I did at first. And that doesn't mean that we go out of here like, whoa, oh, woe is me. We are rubbish. We haven't prayed. We haven't cried. Church is in a mess. That's not what we're looking for. What happens is there's a stirring that that, that kind of is, moves us to, to action, moves us to momentum, that moves us out of just singing, as the song says, moves us into say, let's go. And, I, and this is one of my favourite verses. I'm going to read you this verse, and then I'm going to read a quote, and we're done. Isaiah 62. This is a kind of prayer that Nehemiah might have prayed. He may have had Isaiah in front of him. It says... This is what Isaiah writes. For Zion's sake. What's Zion? It's Jerusalem. It's the church of God. For Zion's sake, I'll not keep quiet. He's talking about his prayers. For Jerusalem's sake, I'll not remain silent till her righteousness shines out like the dawn. The dawn comes to everywhere. Her salvation like a blazing torch, a torch in the middle of the darkness I have posted watchmen on your walls. The walls are broken down. But I've posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent, day or night. That's a resonant, isn't it, from from Nehemiah? Day or night. You who call upon the Lord, give yourselves no rest. And give him no rest until... What are you putting there? What are you putting there? yeah, it's good to pray for family and it's good to pray for people that are struggling it's good to pray for issues. It's good to pray for a job or God bless my finances or help my kids. But but actually there's a bigger thing that covers it all. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest until he establishes his church and makes her the praise of the whole, whole earth. C. H. Spurgeon on this passage said, "Mark well, beloved, how Christ would have His people be in tune with Him. He will have no rest till salvation's work is done, and He would have us, He would us, take no rest and be stirred with passionate desire and fired with holy zeal for the accomplishment of the divine plan of grace." There are many things in this life that you can give your life to. But I want you to give your life for this. I'd have you be in tune with him. Why don't you just stand with me. Vicki will play but not sing. Tip for Vicki there. <laughs> <laughs> it's heavy this. Man, it's heavy. I'm aware. Whoa, you think, man, I didn't come to church to get beat up. There's a lot of lift in Nehemiah to come. But right now we've got to face the facts. It says, Abraham faced the facts that his body was as good as dead, but nevertheless believed God. That's what we're in the business of doing. So let's just be quiet. First of all, I don't believe that God wants you to feel you're useless. That's not the message. He wants you to say, God, you're wonderful. You're great. You're awesome. You can change it you can roll back secularism in this nation. The church of God can fill the earth. The gospel going to every tribe and tongue and nation. The the knowledge of the great and glorious God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But we just need to confess those priorities of God out of shape. Lord, we say forgive us our Prayerlessness. Forgive us our passionless faith. Lord, I pray on this Pentecost day that you do to us like you did to Nehemiah and you'd let us to see this thing again. That you've called us to change the world. Lord, we say pour out your spirit on us. I pray for your gospel to come into every family and life and situation. I pray where we've heard your word again and again and it's bounced off, let it find its resting place in our hearts. I pray as Monday morning comes, Monday evening comes, as we find those moments to seek you, I pray you'd give us a new agenda, a new urgency. Let your gospel build this church and every church in this town and this nation. Lord, we say no further. Would you revive us, pour out your spirit on us, do the things you did in the past. Where your gospel swept through Welsh mining towns. Where your gospel swept through Hebridean Scottish islands. Where your gospel swept through schools and neighbourhoods. Where your gospel swept through London. We say, Lord, we don't want to just watch the decline of your church, lock the doors and walk away. We say, God, would you build it again in our day. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk